Welcome to episode 162 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. If I was a baseball player, and I, and I say this because opening day was last week, the, the Blue Jays beat the Cardinals uh, 10-9 in a bit of a thriller, I would be a streaky hitter. And the same thing and kind of falls up, it spills over into my journalism. When I find something interesting, like I'll do an interview with some, you know, an expert about some topic, and I find it so interesting and, and it opens up so many other questions. And, and journalists, as a rule, are invariably curious. That's what often attracts us to the profession. And so I fall down the rabbit hole. I get streaky. And, I, and hydrogen is one of those. Well, it's probably my my current streak. I've done a number of, of hydrogen uh, interviews. And one of the reasons is because those who believe in or involved in hydrogen advocate for hydrogen are very adamant about it. And those who oppose it are very opposed. And I get this on social media all the time, every time I post a, a hydrogen interview. So I'm just going to do more and explore this uh, issue and get a, trying to get a handle on whether H2 is an energy of, of the future. And to that end, I'm going to be talking today to Dr. Dr. Tim Lewin, who is Regents Professor holder of the David S. Lewis Jr. Chair and the Executive Director of the Strategic Energy Institute at Georgia Tech. Welcome to the interview, Tim. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, tell me, are the Braves going to have a good uh, season this year? <laughs> I, I think you, you, you'll, you'll find better experts there than, than myself. Uh, okay, okay, than the gotcha. Braves. <laughs> gotcha. I just watch them. Yep. Fair, fair enough. Um, look, we're going to be talking about uh, hydrogen, but as I was prepping for the interview, and I noticed in your research, you're an expert on combustion. And I often talk about, you know, maybe someday we'll get to a post-combustion economy where we just stop burning things uh, to make our energy. And I wanted to get your take on that. Uh, do you think we will ever get to post-combustion? Well, that's a great question. And I think some people have the vision of a post-combustion world. Um, I don't think so. And I think there's a lot of good reasons for that is today, basically, our, one way to think about our energy system is there's sources of energy, there is ways of moving energy and storing energy, and then there's things that use energy. Um, and so today, fossil fuels provide our sources of energy, their ways in which we move energy, and then you know we, we burn them. Um, that's the dominant source. Uh, and we use, but we use this thing called electricity sometimes, which is an intermediary. Electricity is not a source of energy. You need something else to make it, which could be a fossil fuel. It could be the sun. It could be wind. But we use electricity to move the energy um, from, from um, where we make it to where we use it. And certainly a mega trend, a multi-trillion dollar trend will be the rise in use of electric power to move energy from point A to point B as opposed to a fuel. Um, will electricity become 100%? Probably not. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. Is, is one is, is that um, certain sectors just naturally like to use, rather than electrical power, use chemical, chemical energy carriers like a fuel. Uh, aviation is probably the best sector for that. I don't think we will ever see large, long-haul aircraft um, and aircraft. That's, I think I'd, I'd be willing to go to the bank on that one. Um, and then, but then even in the electricity sector today, you know, one of the challenges with electricity, it's kind of a just-in-time industry. What you produce and what you 
what you utilize are matched at every instant in time. And, 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 and so we're going to see more batteries come into the system to, to be able to store it. Um, but fuels provide a pretty powerful way of storing energy, energy which you might ultimately use for electricity for long periods of time. Um, so my guess, if I had to put numbers, is today electricity is responsible for moving about 40, if you look at the overall U.S. sector, about 40% of power is moved to the user via electricity. That's going to go up by a lot. It might go up to 60%, might go up to 70%, but it's not going to go to 100%. We're still going to see 20, 30, even 40% of our power delivered via fuel. And combustion is just a great way to convert that energy and the fuel into something useful. I, I think that's a, a commonly held uh, view is that hydrogen will be used to decarbonize, uh, hard to decarbonize sectors. So you mentioned aviation, uh, heavy industry would be another one, long haul transportation would be a, a third. Are those pretty much the sectors that hydro hydrogen is likely to be restricted to? No, I don't think so. So there's the hard to decarbonize sectors and even take aviation. Aviation may or may not use hydrogen. I mean, hydrogen's a gas. It doesn't like to be a liquid. It's kind of a, there's some logistical challenges with using it for aviation. The Europeans and Airbus are making a big go at it. We'll see what happens. But frankly, what we may use are sustainable aviation fuels, which are basically you take hydrogen, you take hydrogen atoms and carbon atoms rather than from fossil fuels, but you stitch, you manufacture them together and you make a fuel that looks like today's jet fuel, but it's, it's made using solar power or wind power, um, but it's a liquid fuel. Um, so, but, but hard to decarbonize sectors, we will certainly see hydrogen, but even in the electricity sector, we're going to see hydrogen because again, the challenge with, with electricity is that it's, it's, it's just tough to store. And, and, and again, we're gonna see growing use of batteries, which are nice for storing energy for a couple hours. But when you start talking about having to store electric power over weeks or months or from seasons, um, even there, we're gonna see use of hydrogen. In fact, if you look at the, I know one of the things we're gonna talk about is the IRA and the IIJA and the hydrogen hubs, there's $8 billion for hydrogen hubs. And if you just go in and look at the use cases, you will see a lot of electric power use cases uh, for hydrogen. Right. And, it, you know, I've, I've talked to economists and, and folks in Alberta who are probably, I think, in Canada leading the, the charge towards, an, you know, building a hydrogen economy. And they think that eventually uh, hydrogen will be stored in big salt caverns that they have there. And then the they have a lot of natural gas power plants at the moment and plan to build some more. And likely that those will be either built with or switched over to dual fuel turbines. So you can burn natural gas if you want, or you can you can burn hydrogen uh, when the uh, you know when it's cold, sun isn't shining, and the wind isn't blowing. All of that um, is that a, a reasonable expectation that that model will be viable at some point in the future? Yeah, I mean that's that's the model people are, are talking about, and I, and I want to emphasize it's important to think about timeframes here because today. I mean, what we're doing when we're doing this hydrogen work is we're planning on, let's say, at post-2030, 2035, depending upon where you're at in decarbonization world. The cheapest way to decarbonize right now is electrification, to your point. Reducing the use of, of combustion, using wind and solar, maybe even nuclear power, um, and taking that electric power and going straight to the user. And, but what happens is, and we're starting to see this in, in grids like Texas. Texas has the ERCOT grid. It's its own grid. Some days, 
50% of their power comes from wind. And so as that wind is moving up and down, someone else is having to do a lot of work in the background to make sure the grid doesn't collapse. Um, so Texas is kind of a flash forward look to the rest of our economy, which doesn't use as many what we call non-dispatchable renewables. You know, solar and wind are what we call non-dispatchable. You can't tell them, you know, they do what they do. You can't tell them when to turn on and off. And so today, you know, like I'll just use the U.S. examples. Uh, solar is about 3% of our electric power. Wind is 10%. So, you know, as those are slamming up and down, as clouds go over or whatnot, the rest of the grid can accommodate those. As you start getting up to 60, 70, 80% penetrations, it gets much, much harder for the grid to work if all of a sudden the wind stops blowing. Um, and that's where you start having to put in a lot more stuff to make sure that the grid doesn't work. And that's where solar and wind, which are the cheapest ways to get decarbonized power today, you start having to back them up with batteries or long duration storage. And that's where you, the hydrogen use case really starts to come into the money. Not today, but where we have a much higher penetration of non-dispatchable electric power generation sources. I was talking to the CEO of um, I think the Rocky Mountain Power Association. It's an uh, it's an association that represents forty two rural uh, utilities, very small community utilities in the I think it's Colorado and um, maybe Utah. You know, in that area around Colorado, and they think that they're going to be up to sixty or seventy percent renewables by twenty thirty, and they're looking very hard at at hydrogen as a storage medium. And, and it, it just, it's, I mean, they think it's technically feasible. There's just a lot of work to do around, you know, the, the technology that makes hydrogen. And I guess that leads to my next question is emerging technologies that might challenge uh, electrolysis that's currently used with water and electricity to make green hydrogen or steam methane reforming, which it makes, it uses natural gas and, uh, and a lot of heat, a lot of energy uh, to make to make uh, blue hydrogen. And the reason I asked this question is uh, two weeks ago, I was in Alberta and I interviewed the, um, uh, the CEO and the chief technology officer for a little company, a little startup that came, actually came out of the oil and gas industry, but it's, it's called Innova Hydrogen and it used meth uses methane pyrolysis. So basically it's electricity and a catalyst they they knock the carbon atom off the off off of uh, methane, and uh, not only do you get uh, hydrogen, it uses it uses a lot le less electricity than uh, than electrolysis, uh, and you don't need water. And on top of that, you get uh, either graphite or graphene as a commercial product that you can sell. And the advantage of it is that it can scale. I mean, it could be you could set up a standalone unit at a truck truck stop for for example or you could scale it up and produce hydrogen uh for like a power plant and it seems like i don't know if that technology you know they're not quite they're not ready to commercialize yet there's still lots of work to do on it but i'm wondering if that isn't is if that's there's got to be other technologies that that folks are are working on and what what your thoughts are on that yeah so you know, it's interesting that technology of basically um, taking um, natural gas or taking any fuel and pulling the, the carbons out of it to make carbon black or it's, it's actually a huge industry today. Um, you know, for example, rubber, the way we make rubber today is something comparable, although 
it turns out that methane's a lousy fuel because it doesn't really it doesn't really want to form carbon black or, or doesn't want to form solid carbon. Um, but yet, in some sense, it's an immature industry. In the other sense, it's kind of an old industry um, just because of the, the, the carbon black and the, and the rubber industries. There are a number of startups working on that specific space. And, and you know, the, the benefit of taking, let's say, a methane or frankly, any other fuel um, is, is that rather than making CO2 that you then have to capture and inject in the ground, you have solid carbon. You can make a pile out of it. You can do something useful with it, or you can just put it somewhere. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, that's that's definitely something that that's out there. You know, there's there's some other interesting ideas around electrolysis of seawater. Um, you know, because right now, you know, is 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 a hydrogen economy going to compete with our water? You know, because the water has to. Have, so there's a lot of interesting studies on being able to use water that's not so clean and not so nice and where you're not necessarily competing with fresh water that humans might want to use. Um, so there's a, there's a, those are, but I think those are really the, 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 the sources is either a hydrocarbon where you're stripping the carbon out, making a carbon black, a hydrocarbon where you're pulling the carbon out and capturing the CO2 or utilizing some kind of water. Well, that leads me to my next uh, comment and question. Uh, I often refer to on this uh, podcast uh, to uh, economist Mariana Mazzucato. And and my particular favorite of her books is The Entrepreneurial State. And she says in there that when we're looking at how uh, governments support innovation and economies support innovation, the Americans are the model. She said, but, but, but do not listen to what they say. All that free market nonsense and <laughs> rhetoric and narratives. No, yeah. no, 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 no. Look at what they do and what they have done for decades, and essentially since the Second World War, is they spend gobs of public money, the good socialists that they are. They yeah, spend gobs yeah. of money on research, like all the national labs, and then they, they fund private research and university research and on and on. And out of that comes fantastic you know, scientific breakthroughs that lead to new technologies, new startups, and then new industries. And that is the key to American, the American innovation engine. And what the, you know, a couple of years ago, the Department of Energy launched the uh, the hydrogen shot, the kind of like the moonshot for for hydrogen. Wants to get down to by twenty thirty to get hydrogen down to a dollar a kilogram, which would be uh, about one fifth of what it is today for green hydrogen. And I just I I can't help but think. That that approach, like once once the, you guys turn your attention to something like this, that problem is going to get solved because you're going to throw money at it and clever people at it until you solve it. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of exciting things happening there. I mean, you know, just you you mentioned so just I can I can tick off a couple examples here is that as part of the um, the the infrastructure bill. You know, eight billion dollars was authorized and earmarked, uh, uh, excuse me, appropriated and authorized for establishment of hydrogen hubs. And that's what those hydrogen hubs are going to do is they're going to solve a problem, kind of a chicken and egg problem that we have um, around hydrogen, which is, yeah, if, if somebody was to give me hydrogen, I could use it. You know, you got a fuel cell, you could put it in a gas turbine. There's a lot of uh, an electric power plant. There's been a number of demonstrations, but just the volume of hydrogen that these users would need. We just don't have. Um, so it's like, well, where's the hydrogen going to come from? Well, somebody's got to produce it. Well, we, there's no economic reason to produce hydrogen today because, frankly speaking, even a dollar a kilogram, by the way, um, let me just put that in terms of, of, of a different kind of unit. If you were to convert that to energy, 
So natural gas is usually priced in dollars per million BTU. So the price of natural gas in the United States, really cheap, $2.50, $3, maybe even sometimes four. Um, but a dollar a kilogram, which is the hydrogen shot goal, is about almost $9 per million BTU. So almost about three and a half times as expensive as natural gas is on an energy basis. So if you have to do something useful, you need a certain amount of energy, what are you gonna have to pay? Well, if it's hydrogen, you're gonna have to pay even with when we meet that goal. Um, but but anyway, so that's that's kind of the lift and that's why hydrogen is not, even if we had these sources, it's, it's a post 2030 type type game as, as we've been talking about. But what, the, what this infrastructure bill, what this $8 billion is gonna do is it's gonna solve a big problem, which is it's gonna put a lot of large capital infrastructure in the ground to produce lots of hydrogen. And that's the key part of what that bill is doing is, is it's obviously the, the, the proposals I think are due in a week um, and they're gonna be regional. And so the Department of Energy is gonna be having to make some tough decisions, but you know we're gonna see different use cases using different sources of those hydrogen atoms. Some of them will be green, some of them will be gray, some of them will be blue, to, some of them will be pink, depending uh, you know, on, on the hydrogen production source. And, but uh, what it's gonna do though is, and it's, it's a 50% cost share, the government's gonna pay half, industry's gonna pay half, it's gonna put a lot of hydrogen production capacity. Then what's gonna happen is the market's gonna say, okay, what am I gonna start doing with this hydrogen? And that's where the other part of, of what the government has done the U.S. government has done is there's a hydrogen production tax credit, which is eligible through 2032, for up to three dollars per kilogram, um, and that's for green green hydrogen. So three dollars. You, you mentioned the current cost is about five dollars per kilogram. Imagine that you can knock three bucks off that. Now you're down to two. Um, so those two things is uh, public subsidizing of major capital infrastructure and production tax credit is. A, in addition to a very expansive R&D programs for, for driving down costs. That's what's happening. I, I want to come back, circle around back to a, a, the point you made at the beginning of that of that comment, which is, is that, um, you know, hydrogen uh, is about, on a BTU basis, about three times the cost of natural gas. And I get this all the time from the oil and gas bros. Why would we bother, you know, creating a fuel or turning natural gas into a fuel when it's that expensive and it's hard to handle and it has all sorts of, you know, other issues that come along with it, like safety, because it's a little molecule that likes to escape and get out of pipelines and, and then blow things up. Uh, so why would we do that? And as, as a scientist who works in this area, how would you respond to that? You know, that yeah, so I think the first thing is, 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 I think it's very important for policymakers and regulators to not pick winners. I think policymakers and regulators need to get focused on what's the goal line? Where are we trying to get? We're trying to get a decarbonized society. What's the least cost way to get there? What's the most just way to get there? And so forth. Let the market, let the technologists figure it out. Do not, I think policymakers and regulators need to get out of the business of, of saying which technologies we'll use. So I'm gonna go out on a limb here a little bit and saying things like outlawing internal combustion engines or outlying natural gas pipelines, not a good idea. Let's focus on what are we trying to do? Let's not, let's not regulate technologies. Let's regulate um, what we're trying to do. Now, obviously carbon taxes, which would, would solve that problem is a, is a political non-starter in the US, but just I'll, just I'll just start there. But I think it's what we need to do is let the market figure this out. And I think we need to let, you know, there's a lot of competing ideas. So the, our, my friends in the oil and gas industry 
take their point. Okay. Then what we have to do is we have to start figuring out, okay, so if you're going to use a hydrocarbon, you're going to make carbon dioxide. You can pull, you can basically pull the carbons out pre-utilization or post-utilization. If you pull it out pre, you're still making hydrogen. I mean, so, you know, you're, you're, it's like, it's a little bit like steam methane reforming or something like that, where you're making the hydrogen and then you're taking the CO2 and you're, um, or you're pulling it out post-utilization or post, if it's combustion, post-combustion, but if, if it was some other technology. Um, and then you figure out the cost of that. And I think we've, there's, you can do it pre, you can do it post. Let, let, let these large scale industrial experiments figure this out and what's the cheapest way to get there. Right. And th that was the second tax uh, credit that the, in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act is a Section 45Q of the tax code, that credit for blue hydrogen, but more specifically for carbon sequestration, carbon capture and sequestration. And that's a big issue. I mean, Alberta is actually one of the world's leader in in carbon capture and storage. It yeah. had the Quest project back, I, I forget, probably seven or eight years ago, Shell's uh, Quest project. It's had some some smaller ones. It's got a it's got a, a carbon trunk a trunk line, a pipeline that people they're already uh, identifying. Um, reservoirs that have the right porosity so that they can bury large quantities of this the oil sands i mean on and on and on there's a lot of and the proponents say no 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 well, you know we've had enough experience with carbon capture and storage now we can capture it efficiently we can transport it efficiently we can bury it efficiently this is a this is a good way to go but i mean even the ipcc says well, hang on a second now you know we're not so sure that this is a scalable technology nobody's done it at large scale yet we're not sure what the economics are going to be and big things always have cost overruns in, inevitably and so what what's your take on that is ccs a you know mature technology or are, is it still as one economist calls it a you know a, a uh, what is the word I'm looking for? It's uh, tech, safe bets. Technologies are those that are mature and competitive. A wild card. That's what it is. Yeah, I mean, is this, it, yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. I think so. The oil and gas industry does have a lot of experience with managing CO2, and that experience has come about because of enhanced oil recovery, where you basically use the CO2 to get more out of your oil well, and so there's a clear economic benefit. Um, from the value of that, those oil or gas resources. Lots of experience in Canada, lots of experience in the US, lots of experience in Europe, frankly, um, uh, on using, um, you know, like the Sleipner oil field uh, has a lot of, 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 of CO2 management. So, on, and, and, and what we're doing is we're, we're starting to learn from watching these reservoirs where we put a lot of CO2 is how is it migrating? How is it moving around? And so I think that's happening. Now, we also have a number of large demo plants like coal plants or um, syngas plants where we're capturing the CO2. I think the results are much more mixed there. You know, significant cost overruns. One of those facilities is a number of those facilities are, are not operational or significant delays. So I think, frankly, to say that we're there, I think would be would be a stretch um, for carbon capture from from centralized power plants. Um, you know, but I'll also emphasize what that that tax credit, what it also did was it, it there's a there's a credit for carbon capture from concentrated sources, but it also put in a very generous tax credit, $180 per ton for direct air capture, which is, you know, this sci fi 
far out technology where rather than extracting the very, very concentrated CO2 from a power plant, you're pulling the 450 ppm, much more dilute CO2 from the air, which means that you can locate your facility anywhere, but it's a, a larger energy penalty to extract it. Yeah, right. And one of the one of the leading companies in that is Carbon Engineering from Calgary, yep. and uh, yep. and just uh, entered into some contracts with uh, with Oxy down in the U.S. to co-locate some uh, direct air capture plants down there. Uh, I guess Oxy is trying to get to carbon neutral on yeah, its and if uh, I can hydrocarbon. Just, if I can just interrupt real quick when we were talking about large U.S. subsidies in our socialist state, you know, there's in addition to the eight billion dollars for hydrogen. You know, there's a three and a half billion dollar direct air capture. Uh, and so, again, and those those proposals are in right now. And so there's a number of teams competing. And what that's going to do, again, it's going to put a lot of capital projects on the ground. And we're going to learn and we're going to learn and we're going to see how it goes. Well, we've so talked early to call, I think. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I say I would yeah. agree with that. I And yeah. this is my my pushback to the hydrogen bros is that is. This is a wildcard technology, and the basic premise of a wildcard technology is that it's not competitive, it's not, it's still immature, but it shows promise. And we should continue to develop that technology until we know it either works or it doesn't work. Or maybe it has only niche markets, and that's fine. But we, we won't know if we just abandon it because on the assumptions that, you know, on today's assumptions and a technical, technical breakthrough like this methane pyrolysis... <laughs> I'll push, I'm going to push back a little bit when you say it's not competitive, because again, okay. what we do, the most competitive way, the, the lowest cost way to decarbonize today is not to make hydrogen. It's to put more fuels, more solar cells and wind farms in the ground. Full stop. The most competitive way to manage this system, let's say post 2030, is a very different matter. And there's been a number of, there's a whole community, they're called macro energy systems modelers, where they put together these detailed models of the overall you know, U.S. or Canadian or global oil system, uh, energy systems. And then they basically wrapped an optimizer around these things and say, what's the lowest cost way to get to net zero? And every one of these models without fail wants hydrogen. They want a lot of hydrogen in these systems. They don't want it today, but they want it post 2030, post 2035. So in fact, again, the most economical way to get there today is not the same as a society where we have a lot of non-dispatchable energy uh, and we need some way of storing that energy for long periods of time, as well as moving that energy. You know, I'll give you another quick stat. It costs about 10 times as much. If you want to move a unit of energy, it costs you about 10 times as much to, to build the electric, electrical transmission distribution system as a fuel transmission distribution system. So again, the, the best economics is, is, is a function of time. Well, I, actually, you you were making my argument. That that's where I was okay. going with this. Yeah. We 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 agree on on this point. You just did it more articulately than uh, than I did. So good good <laughs> on you. Um, yeah. So the first we started at the at the big picture on combustion, and then we got in and talked a lot about the issues around hydrogen and and the inflation reduction act. Let's pull back again now and look at the big picture in, for hydrogen in the U.S. Where do you, the models say, you know, after 2030, maybe after 2035. So does this mean that we're going to spend the next seven years, 12 years, you know, basically proving it out, getting better, iterative, iterative you know, improvements, uh, building up 
you know, our our technology on both the supply side and the demand side? Is that where we're going to go? And expecting, you know, it'll be that hydrogen will really be a benefit down the road. Yeah. So that's that's my take on it. Is that, is that what we're doing? Is we're we're buying ourselves options in time. We, we it, from an economic basis, you wouldn't if if it was your again the, what you want to do today is not what you necessarily want to do ten years from now. So we're building up experience because, like you said, hydrogen is leaky. It's it it it's explosive, um, more explosive than things like natural gas. So we've got a lot of lessons to learn. We've got to drive down production costs. We have to evaluate it with lots of different types of use cases. And that's one of the things that the hydrogen hubs are going to do is there's going to be a lot of different types of use cases. Um, you know, the, the, the specific proposals are proprietary, but I can I can give you some general ideas just from is, is you're going to see use cases where you're going to use hydrogen for electric power plants. That's going to be a more expensive use case. You're going to see proposals where hydrogen is used for transportation, let's say for fuel cells at, at ports like the Port of Savannah or the Port of Long Beach. Um, and we'll see, you know, so we'll see lots of different use cases and, 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 and um, experiments. And then with the idea that a decade from now we have we have a better idea and then the, then the private market can really take over and figure out the best way to, to plug this into a system that's resilient. Yeah, let me let me illustrate that with uh, a story about the Edmonton Regional Hydrogen Hub, and so that's one of the early hydrogen hubs in North America. It's been up for a couple of and running for a couple of years now, and they're launching a, a hydrogen bus pilot project. And a number of the municipalities will be involved. The city of Edmonton's about a million people. It's obviously the big player in this. And I interviewed their the city's uh, transit manager Eddie Robar about this. You know, so they they already have sixty uh, electric buses, battery electric buses. And uh, unlike Georgia, Edmonton gets down to minus twenty, minus thirty, sometimes even minus forty. It's a cold, cold place, right? And so the the battery electric buses don't work as well in wintertime, which is five or six months of the year. Yeah. So from the city's point of view, hydrogen fixes some of the problems that come along with battery electric buses. It'll 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 operate uh, in those kinds of temperatures, more reliable. It looks more like a diesel bus to the, to yeah. those. And, and that's and that's a big attraction. Now, you know, to commentators or, you know, looking at it, that may not be a big thing, but for the the city, it is, and and there are other issues like their their bus barn, the infrastructure, the distribution infrastructure is maxed out. So if you're going to add more electric buses, yeah. then you got to make a major in, uh, uh, investment in your your infrastructure. Do they want to do that? They're not. So the point I'm getting to, Tim, is is that this is one of those use cases where they're going to pilot it and just see how it goes. Yeah. You yeah. know, you need yeah. you need some real yeah. world experience here to know whether this is going to work or not. And that gets me back to the wildcard technology. That's exactly how we should be doing things. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, the transportation sector, it's the single largest CO2 emitter in the United States, I think. And, you know, there's really kind of three technologies that we are seeing, you know, electrification that you mentioned, hydrogen, probably hydrogen fuel cells, but then also liquid fuels, you know, sustainable liquid fuels, you know, basically a renewable gasoline or diesel. And, probably we're going to, or, or renewable aviation fuel, um, but we're probably going to see all three of those use cases find their niche. We, we know probably light duty, you know, sing, you know, like smaller cars, electric is probably the optimal thing. We know for airplanes, a liquid fuel that looks is probably the optimal thing, but then in between, 
the market just needs to go out and do a lot of experiments and figure out, you know, where does electric make sense? Where does hydrogen make sense? But then also where do sustainable liquid fuels make sense? Well, I'm going to close the interview with a, a comment I regularly make, which is that uh, in energy transitions, and this is not the first one we've had, we've had a little experience with energy transitions over the years and kind of know how they work. And generally because technology plays such a big role in them, they we look at the technology and put them on the S-curve, the adoption S-curve. And a lot of what happens is that they spend you know literally decades on that flat part of the S-curve at the beginning, but then they get to the inflection point, And when they do, then they start to disrupt markets. And, and things get a little chaotic for a yeah. while. You know, back in the, the late 20s when you had horses everywhere and flivers and tractors and all sorts of things, you know, it, it's not easy to, to look forward, you know, to look forward and say, this is, you know, by 1948, there won't be another horse on the, on the farm and everything will be, you know, internal combustion engine vehicles and combines and tractors and all of that. But this, the 2020s, is the disruptive decade of this energy transition. There are so many new technologies coming into the marketplace. They're starting to push uh, the hydrocarbons and the and coal out of the marketplace. And it's just the next, and it's it's such a big process now, it'll probably be like 2035, 2040 before it is less disruptive. But that makes it a challenge for policymakers, for, for entrepreneurs, for, for big corporations, for workers. Everybody's challenged because, you know, there's no stability. It's very difficult to look, you know, even a couple of years down the road. Would you agree or disagree? No, totally agree. Because, I mean, to, to, to your point, we will see a role for hydrogen in a, in a net zero economy. Whether it's a gigantic role or a tiny role, I think is very much TBD. As, as we're performing all these different experiments um, and, and figuring out what's the, what's the lowest cost way to get there. Yeah, fair enough. Well, Tim, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Absolutely. All right.